Um, I was watching Gerd speak before, and I think I have to follow that. So uh, I'm a little bit nervous, actually. Um, and you'll find that my presentation is uh, not quite as slick. In fact, it's, it's not slick at all. Um, and it looks like I'm going to be the controversial one here today. Uh, the one saying there is no future of music. Not that I think music doesn't have a future, just that I think that anyone who tries to tell you what it is is probably either delusional or a liar. Uh, no offence, me to anyone in particular. Um, that's me, uh, I'm Andrew Dubber. You can find out about what I do on the internet, but my job, uh, as Andrew mentioned, is uh, reader in music industry's innovation. And if you haven't come across the term reader before, uh, it's an academic term meaning almost, but not quite smart enough to be a professor. <laughs> um, the point of my talk is neatly encapsulated by this one phrase by Marshall McLuhan, uh, who we'll return to once or twice as this presentation progresses. Uh, it's a short phrase, uh, but it is a dense and widely misunderstood phrase. And if you unpack it, um, well, you won't need me anymore. The medium is the message. So there are essentially three things that I want to talk to you about today. Uh, it's all very well just to say no future, like the punks did, or the medium is the message, as uh, McLuhan did. But what I really want to do is make sure that you get this, uh, because it is really incredibly important, and particularly for what you do. The first thing I want to make sure you take away from this talk is a very simple fact that you probably know intuitively anyway, but I'll demonstrate it just to be certain that you simply can't predict the future. And the mere act of trying to do so pretty much guarantees you'll be wrong. The second thing I want to do uh, is explain where we're up to in history and what's going on around us right now. And of course, the interesting thing about this is that most people who attempt to predict the future clearly do not understand the present. And then I want to tell you a story that illustrates these principles uh, and demonstrates that the way forward is not about wild guesses about where we're headed, but instead to accurately interpret where we're at and to adapt and respond with understanding. Okay, so step one. There's a reason why I was initially reluctant uh, to attend this conference. Discussions about the future of anything presuppose remarkable psychic abilities. Call me a skeptic. I'm also really cautious about getting into any discussions about music that come from a position of essentialism. Uh, but just from talking to a few of you last night, I realise I'm on pretty safe ground here. I mean, hands up anyone who seriously believes that the experience of music has ever been, or will ever be, entirely uniform. That's what I thought. Because one of the worst arguments to get into about the future of music is about what we will all do. Uh, in the future, we'll all use X technology. We'll all get our music from the cloud. We'll all listen on mobile devices. We'll all have jetpacks, silver jumpsuits, and meals in a pill. In fact, if there's anything that we can safely say that we will all do, it's that we'll all have an interesting and different relationship with and experience of music. And that's a good thing. So I'm very wary about discussions about the future simply because of this trap of generalization and essentialism. All that said, one of the arguments in favour of contemplating the future is about spotting trends and being prepared, in inverted commas. However, there is an immediate problem with trend spotting, and I call it the problem of extrapolation. Now, how trend spotting works is that you look for patterns. What was true last year, what's true this year, and based on that, what's going to be true in five years' time, say, advertising spend worldwide, for instance. Now, I can understand the appeal of that and acting in an all-other-things-being-equal manner, but all other things are never equal. 
I'll give you an exaggerated example that will actually seem absurd, but it's exactly the kind of thinking that goes into trend spotting. I'd like you to meet my sister Karen. <coughs> In 2006, Karen had one child under the age of five, Shay. Uh, then within the space of about three years, along came Zach and Asher, three children under five. The number of children my sister had tripled in three years. Now, if we extrapolate that rate of change, <laughs> by the time Karen was 50, she would have no fewer than 168 million children under the age of five. By 2032, every man, woman, and child on Earth will be my under-school-age niece or nephew. <laughs> now, clearly, that is not the case. Uh, it's a deliberately ridiculous example, but it is an example of the kind of thinking that you get when you're relying on statistical information that we're presented with to come up with even vaguely realistic numbers. We can't actually predict, based on this information, whether or not my sister will have a fourth child. Um, we just don't have the facts for that. And there's a good reason for that. This is based on what individual human beings do. And so is music. Music composition, production, distribution, promotion, and especially consumption are cultural activities far more than they are abstract statistical data. And they are really incredibly complex. Far too complex to fit on a graph like that one. But even if you ignore the problem of extrapolation, you have a second, and I would argue, equally significant problem. And it's the problem of unreliable data, data based on what the industry likes to call independent market research. Now, of course, we academics have our own arcane terminology for this kind of industry-sponsored information. Data provided by record industry bodies, internet service providers, telecoms, Morgan Stanley, mobile manufacturers, industry lobby groups and government departments and news organisations are, by definition, unreliable. Not only are the research methods often hugely questionable, but the data are selected and published only with respect to the degree to which they support a position. A colleague of mine at the university has some great case studies of these, including a record industry statistical fact about unauthorised downloading that is repeated over and over again in public discourse about file sharing, uh, despite the fact that it's been demonstrated on more than one occasion to be out by a factor of 10. That is to say, the number actually has an extra zero on the end of it. Now, whether that's a genuine mistake or not, it has been used to make some very dire predictions about our future. And far be it from me to disparage independent research companies and talk about proper research in a snooty academic manner, but without the rigour of peer review and referencing the data rather than simply asserting it to be true, you do run into some problems. Now, to illustrate this point, it's worth telling you about a mobile phone company who approached the research unit that I work in uh, and funded some of my colleagues to do a small research project about the way in which mobile phones are used for social interaction. My colleagues did a rather thorough job of it and returned to the mobile phone company with some fairly compelling data. What the hell is this, was the response. That's the wrong answer. We paid you to provide research to back up claims that X was true. And of course we had to agree to differ. So what's the future of the music industry? It depends on who's telling the story and who's providing the data. Safest to just assume that the basic facts are wrong from the outset. But there's another major problem, and it's one that most people miss. It's the problem of media centrism. I'll explain that. Every prediction I've heard about the future of the music industry assumes the centrality of recordings as the heart of music business. How will we consume music? Will it be downloaded? Will it be streamed? Will it be mobile? Pay what you want, all you can eat, portable, 
pervasive? Well, there are people who will happily tell you how and in what quantity we can be consuming recordings of music. Some of them are in this room. But there is a really simple point to be made here, though that's why I'll go into more depth about as we go along. And it's just this. We are talking about the wrong stuff. Recordings of music are not music. And then there's what I consider to be the biggest problem of all when it comes to predicting the future of anything at all based on trends. There's a superb book by a man named Nassim Nicholas Taleb that I absolutely urge you to read. And if nothing else comes out of this conference today, and if no other single piece of information is useful to your life or your work, at least take this one piece of advice, and this whole day will be worthwhile. Go and read Taleb's book, The Black Swan. The central premise of The Black Swan is that the most likely thing to happen is an unknown unknown. Not only can you not rely on friends, but that it is entirely likely that something will happen to disrupt your predictions that you could not have possibly anticipated. In media, disruptive technologies are the norm. Let's show you roughly what that looks like. <laughs> now, in fact, while that may look like an exaggerated slide to you, it would probably be more accurate to place that last X on an entirely different graph in a completely different room. No trends or trend pickers predicted anything that has had significant impact on the way we communicate and the way in which we consume music and media. Nobody predicted YouTube. Nobody predicted Napster. Nobody predicted SMS text messaging or Twitter or social networking. They all make sense in retrospect, but only in the way that a punchline of a joke does. You never see it coming. And actually, I think that's a good thing. If it was predictable, it wouldn't be innovation. And it's innovation that drives progress, growth, and economic success, not guessing based on predictions. So if you extrapolate and predict and you don't factor the utterly game-changing impact of unforeseeable disruptive technologies, then you'll not only be guaranteed to be wrong, but you'll discover whole new levels of wrong nobody imagined possible. <laughs> and finally, there's the problem of asking the wrong questions. When you assume that the media environment is the way that it appears on the surface, and that you can predict the future based on projections, then you tend to ask meaningless <coughs> questions. Questions like, how can the internet save the music industry? Now, I can think of at least three things wrong with that question. But the simplest point to make here is, that's not what it's for. How do we stop people stealing intellectual property? Again, there are a few presuppositions in there. Let's not even unpack them. But pause only to note that this question requires a belief in romantic era notions of originality and an entirely fictional construction of what a consumer is. Now, I actually, we were interviewed, Gerd and I, on the radio last week, and I encountered this question, and I was dying to bite back on it, but this idea that music was better when it was expensive to make, uh, to which I can only say, bollocks. <laughs> uh, a world with less music, less access to music making, and only a professional guild of either moneyed or exploited musicians is not a better world. This one is one I get from musicians a lot, uh, and from independent record labels, and it reveals a basic misunderstanding of what the internet does. It's a means of communication, human beings talking to each other. What should your internet strategy be? I don't know. What's your telephone strategy? <laughs> <laughs> and this one is paraphrased hundreds of questions about business on the internet. 
The internet's not a marketplace, it's a means of communication. You can do business online, of course, uh, but as soon as you think that that's all it does or all it's for, you start making catastrophic public policy decisions. Okay, so this is where Gerd and I pretty much part company entirely. Um, it's a much longer conversation, and one that he and I have had on a number of occasions, but to me, the music like water blanket licensing argument is completely well-intentioned. Uh, but not only is it not a solution, it makes the real problem worse. Now, disrespect to Gerd, of course, nothing against him personally. We've just looked at the same set of parameters and looked at the same problems and have come to entirely different conclusions. I fundamentally believe that the effect of what he's proposing will not only not be the effect he expects, but it will in fact cause the complete opposite effect and in a way that we can't predict, a sort of McLuhan-esque black swan reversal. I only have half an hour here, so I won't go into too much depth, and it's not an argument that I came here to have, but every single one of these wrong questions start with this. It's a failure to understand the nature of digital media, how people consume music, what they do with it, the meanings it has for them, the whole point of copyright, the nature of entrepreneurship, and a whole lot of other stuff about media ecology, the behaviour and logic of corporations, all that stuff about media centrism and the centrality of recordings, the fact that music is culture and not simply a commodity, and lots more besides. We get bad answers about the future when we ask the wrong questions. So, you can't predict the future anyway, but that's especially true if you don't understand the present. And you won't understand the present unless you actually understand the media environment that we currently inhabit and how it operates. So let's do that now. As a civilization, we've lived through five main communicative phases. And these phases have to do not only with the ways in which we communicate, but also the ways in which we take in information about the world. Each age denotes a different category of human being. We are, as people, fundamentally and physically different. That is, we're wired up differently in each media age. When our media environment changes, we adapt and evolve. Not metaphorically, we actually become different. I'll show you what I mean. first media age of mankind was the oral age. We spoke, we sang, we sat around campfires, and we told each other stories. And the main way in which people produced, consumed, and made money from music, if they did at all, was minstrelsy, troubadouring, busking, if you like. And that oral age was with us for about, let's say, 10,000 years, give or take. But we're an inventive lot, and eventually we come up with writing, though clearly it's not something that all of us are good at. Um, but that brings us to the scribal age, and everything changed. Suddenly, knowledge wasn't something that you could ask questions of. It was captured and preserved for the ages. People with the skill of literacy were the keepers of the knowledge, and it was a source of power and influence. And if you wanted a copy of a document, you'd send your scribes on a long journey. They'd spend a month copying the book out onto parchment, roll up the manuscript, and then bring it back to your monastery. Sadly, when texts are so precious and rare, sometimes great calamities can befall them, like the fire that wiped out the Alexandrian Library, taking hundreds of thousands of irreplaceable scrolls containing a large chunk of all recorded human knowledge with it. But the main way in which people produced, consumed, and made money from music, if they did at all, was composing, patronage, educated people writing dots on pages to give to other educated people who would perform to rich people and their friends, or to the church. 
And after maybe a thousand years of the scribal age, everything changed again, thanks to a man called Mr. Gutenberg. Mass-produced books means widespread literacy. And that means that the message is now in everyone's hands. Before long, people are nailing their edicts to church doors or sitting in private taking in information at their own pace, the words going into their brains like beads on a string. Our brains change as a result radically. We develop an unprecedented sense of the individual. We develop sequential logic and cross-referencing. And with mechanical reproduction, we invent the industrial age. Along comes the age of print. And the pinnacle of music business was mass-producing those dots on pages. Now, music as a business, of course, flourishes. And before long, there is what you could call a real industry. The industry is called music publishing. And the main way in which money is made from music is through the creation, distribution, and retail of dots on pages. People can go into a shop, buy a favorite song, take it home, and play it badly on the piano in the parlor. Now, the print age lasted a good 500 years, and you'll notice that that number keeps getting smaller. And as time came and went, then suddenly, bam, Marconi, Edison, Franklin, Faraday, Volta, Tesla, Morse, and Bell changed the world again with their magnets and sparks and whatnot. Not only can culture now be mass-produced, it can now be captured as audio or images and mass-broadcast as well. Now, it's one thing to read a book that somebody else is reading and be able to have a conversation about it. It's something quite different, again, to simultaneously witness man sitting <coughs> on the moon along with millions of other people across the globe. The electric age completely transforms our media environment again. The main way in which our brains take in information about the world in which we live and how we can make sense of it is fundamentally altered. And for music, of course, with electricity comes recording. Now you can not only have a famous song in your living room on a piece of paper, you can have an idealized performance of that song by an international artist. And unlike the piano in your parlor, it will sound the same every single time you play it. Now, of course, this was a massive challenge to the music industry that came before it. The sheet music publishers were the music industry, and these recording companies completely threatened their livelihood. Besides, how were local musicians going to make any money at all in concert halls if a single artist in another country could record one performance of a song and sell it all over the world? And the answer is, pretty much everyone had to adapt. The old sheet music industry fought the recorded music industry tooth and nail. How the recorded music industry even fought radio, as Gert suggested. Who was going to buy records if people could hear them for lot But just as the previous models of music business had survived in some marginalized form from one age to the next, it's still possible to buy sheet music today, for instance, and it's still possible to make money making and selling it, but it's just not the main way in which that happens anymore. The electric age is characterized by TV shows, radio airplay, records, tapes, CDs, retail stores with display shelves, top 40 charts, superstars, the dream of being signed to a major label, and the album and the single as the main way in which music is produced and consumed. The Electric Age lasted for about 100 years. It's over. We think it's still the main thing, but it's not. And I can't stress this strongly enough. The Electric Age, the age of recordings and broadcasting, is behind us. We are in a new age now. Welcome to the digital age. This is a fundamental change, just as the other ages represent a profound change in our media environment, and more importantly, 
who we are as human beings. The way in which we take in information and how we make sense of the world is increasingly digital rather than broadcast or print. It's quite literally reshaping us and has been rewiring our brains for around about 20 years now. From mobile phones to laptops, sat-navs to digital cameras, YouTube to Skype, iPods to USB keys, what we surround ourselves with, the media environment we are immersed in, has fundamentally changed. And while the recording industry, the film industry, and the publishing industry remind us that we are consumers and they are the content providers, we have the opportunity to remember that it wasn't always that way and nor does it necessarily need to be a characteristic of the digital age. In fact, it probably can't be. Like sheet music, when recordings came along, recordings are now being marginalized. CD sales are not declining because of piracy, but because CDs are the last remnant of the electric age. But don't forget, you can still walk into a shop and buy sheet music. It's just not the main way in which music is produced and consumed anymore. Likewise, CDs. Okay, into the home stretch. I want to tell you a really quick story about a theatre director. Now, a couple of you here have heard this story before, so I won't drag it out. And it's probably not the first bit of fiction that you've encountered today, but it does go straight to the heart of the matter. It's about understanding media shift so that you can adapt. The point is not to predict the future, but to recognize what's really going on so you can thrive in the new media environment. And the story goes like this. There's this theater director, he's really good at his job. He understands drama and pathos, character development, narrative arcs, props, lighting, all that stuff, and everything else that makes for good theater. And then somebody goes and invents television, and he's faced with a dilemma. These TV cameras, do I just point them at the stage and make televised theater? Or do I understand the new medium on its own terms, use my skills of narrative and character, but incorporate the new technologies into what I do and start making TV shows? Now, of course, in his case, the second one was the correct answer. Stop pointing television cameras at the theater and start making TV shows. Stop making recordings of music and pointing websites and MySpace pages at it. That's the same thing. Because these are the sorts of phrases that indicate that we haven't understood it properly yet. If we're still talking about televised plays, we don't understand the medium of television yet. If we're still talking about horseless carriages or the wireless, then we haven't really internalized the concept of car or radio. And likewise, these phrases. We're not streaming TV or reading newspapers online. We're using the internet, and that's different. Here's another. We think recordings of music are music, and that to put recordings of music on a web page is the height of digital sophistication. But online music is not a medium in the way recordings are. They are the mere content. And as long as we keep focusing on the content and how we get that content, we miss the important bit, the context. The medium, as I said, is the message. The content, as McLuhan put it, is a distraction to get our minds off what's really going on. It's the juicy piece of meat for the watchdog of the mind that the burglar brings along. Or, if you're a gamer, you'll know this to be true. The cake is alive. Who gets that, incidentally? One. Fantastic. <laughs> That's an in-joke. So here's the disappointing bit. 
especially if you came here today to have your fortune told. There's a far more serious task to be undertaken here. Understand the present, the media environment as it really is, the fifth media age. You still won't be able to predict the future, but you won't have to. You'll be in a position to invent it. Thank you very much.